Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 216 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Joe Prentel. She's an ASHA fellow and board-certified specialist in swallowing. She is the past ASHA chair of the CCFC, which oversees the implementation of certification and standards of care in speech pathology and audiology. She has specialized in managing dysphagia disorders for over 30 years in critical and acute care. Joe has extensive experience in developing interdisciplinary dysphagia programs in acute and inpatient rehab settings. She has numerous awards and publications. And welcome back, everyone. Happy New Year. Hope you all love it, or hope you all enjoy this episode with Joe. I think it's a great kickoff to the new year. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. All right. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Teresa. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. I just realized what time it was. I'm so sorry it's so early in your time zone, but thank you for hopping on so early. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, So tell the people a little bit about yourself. Okay. My name is Joe Puntill, and I have been a speech pathologist for, I'm going to say over 30 years, so that will just get people guessing at how old I am. Um, My background is pretty much a specialist in swallowing, excuse me, and swallowing disorders, of course. And then I'm also a critical care specialist. So I've worked in critical care since I started. Had no idea what I was doing in critical care, but was trained by a lot of doctors. And so pretty much all I do all day is see patients. I work, I worked for many years in Southern California in a level one, um, thousand bed trauma center and then had a private practice where you, I would build programs all over Southern California and also, of course, saw patients all day because I didn't think that you'd be an effective lecture if you're not really seeing patients all day. And then I moved to Southern Utah in the St. George area, and we're a level two trauma center, small little hospital, only 275 beds. But I feel like I live kind of on a desert island because the closest hospital to the south of us is South Ve- is Las Vegas, which is 120 miles away. And then the other level one or two hospitals about 300 miles north of us. So we get all of the traumas from all of the wonderful climbing and skiing and all the lakes for the water um, accidents and that that kind of stuff. And also I live in a retirement community, so we get a tremendous amount of strokes. Uh, and what happens with people, of course, that are, that are retired. So that's pretty much what I do all day. I just see patients, uh, work in acute care, my favorite place to work, and 
build programs. That's about it. Awesome. Work for Intermountain Medical Center, of course. Awesome. Amazing. All right. So where, where should we start today? What do you want to talk about, Joe? Well, I think one of the things that I think is really interesting is how we started this pre and post-op CV heart issue for the heart patients. So I was, so we have uh, uh, three CV surgeons that we work with, um, all really good friends of mine. And what happened was I remember being up at DRS in Toronto and they presented some, Rosemary Martino's group presented their fabulous research on post-op heart patients and the, the problems that patients had if they were intubated for 24 to 48 hours post-heart operations that they think, I don't quite remember the stati- exact statistic, but it was over 60% of the people had dys, uh, dysphagia or difficulty swallowing. Let's put it that way. And I remember sitting in the audience and texting Dr. Bowles, Jason Bowles, and saying, this doesn't seem right to me. Like, why are people intubated for 24 hours to 48 hours after heart surgery? Because our patients are extubated within four to six hours of heart surgery. They are up, out of bed, eating, you know, clearly eight hours after surgery. And I just thought, what are what are we doing differently than Toronto? I mean, I highly respect that group. And the funny thing was, is I got up and asked a couple questions saying, what was the cross clamp time? Um, how many of these people had strokes? What was the intubation time of the whole surgery? Thinking it was an intubation issue. And it was Dr. Bowles that basically said, you know, I bet they're going into surgery frail. And it never occurred to me. It just, and this was many, many years ago, it never occurred to me. So he pulled an IRB and we did research, which I am not a researcher at all. I'm a clinician. I had no idea how to do research. But how we set it up was we did what he came up to me with, which was kind of embarrassing, as he said, so in the American Thoracic Society, people have to do a five-meter walk test, and it's five meters in six seconds. And if they can't walk in five meters in six seconds, they're deemed frail. And that's something all over the world, correct? And so he came up to me and he said, so what's your most sensitive screen for swallowing. And I just kind of looked at him and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, there's four or five different kinds of screens that we use in our field. And there's not one that there's a consensus of dysphagia specialists that say, we're going to pick this. So the one that I used the most and um, followed clearly was Dr. Leader and Dr. Suter's Yale Swallow Protocol. So Before surgery, we'd set up this IRB, and before surgery, we did a walk test. We actually had occupational therapy do a hand grip because their hand grip shows frailty. And then we did the Yale Swallow Protocol on all the patients. And this was back before EMRs that were electronic, clearly. So everything was hand done, and we had these boxes, and it was double-blind prospective study. So I had no idea if these patients failed the walk test or the hand grip, and they had no idea if they failed the swallowing screen. So the very first patient that failed the swallow screen was alert, oriented, did everything that he needed to do, but he he couldn't finish the 90 ml and also coughed. I didn't know what to do because my clinician kicked in, right? I'm like, I'm not going to let this guy do surgery knowing that he's got a risk of aspiration. So I called Jason and said, hey, this guy failed. He goes, you're not supposed to tell me that. (laughs) And I was like, but my clinician's kicking in at my researcher and we need to really watch this person closely post-op. So fast forward, this was done over a year's time and we had everybody sign up saying they were 65 and older. It was all elective surgeries, nothing emergent, all of that. And what we basically found, um, we have, I I sent you the articles because we did, we did publish our, our research and I did speak about it at TRS in 2015, I believe. When it was in Nashville, 10% of the patients that walked, went into surgery failed their pre-op. Those 10% clearly failed post-op. And then another 10% failed. So about 20% of the people fail their post-op screen. And I know that Dr. Martino's group, they screen all of their post-op patients. But I think at this point, we're the only hospital out in southern Utah that screens all pre pre-op and post-op heart patients. Now we screen 
um, all the TAVRs, the Watchmans, all the emergency sur- surgeries. So those patients love us because they're getting shaved and, you know, lab work done and they're NPO and they came in the hospital. They're, they're clearly fragile. They are clearly needing um, emergent heart surgery. And I come in and say, Hey, I get to give you some water. And they're like, no. I'm NPO, but remember in heart surgery, they put an OG tube down so that they don't aspirate during surgery. So our patients go to the OR, they have their surgeries, they go to the intensive care unit and get recovered and they get extubated in the intensive care unit. So we're much more of a nice greased wheel where all the patients that fail pre-op get notified. I text the docs that are doing the surgery, FYI, your patient you know, Teresa Richard today, tomorrow's failed her pre-op. So they know that they failed it. Um, and then the nurse that's receiving the patient knows that they failed it. And so before they extubate a patient, they'll give all the meds OG-wise so they don't have to worry about their swallowing. Uh, when the patient's extubated, we come in and see the patient. And the nurse always cleans their mouth, gives ice chips, and then we see the patient. And it's an automatic speech eval. Our second What we found actually was the year before we did this research, we had nine pneumonias with heart patients. The year we did the research, we had one. And then since then, we've had probably one pneumonia because we now know when people are going in fragile. We also found that more people failed the walk test, but the swallow test, the swallow screen was much more of a predictive value of fragility than the walk test. So our CV surgeons go to meetings and say, okay, so we're mandated to do this screen, but we're missing the people that are most fragile. So the people that failed to swallow screen were in the hospital longer. Uh, They ended up probably going either to acute rehab or a SNF, not going home. And so our, we've completely changed our practice now to anybody that fails pre-op gets an automatic rehab eval and respiratory eval post-surgery. So PTOT speech and respiratory therapy are automatically involved with patients to get these people up, moving, and then the nurses are clearly notified, and it's a really well-integrated team, and they love it. The nurses love it now because... If the patient gets extubated late, they do the screen later in the day, like at 9 o'clock at night or whatever, and immediately let us know first thing in the morning if someone failed or not. They just keep their mouths clean, do IV fluids, IV meds, um, and let them have ice chips until we do an eval. Amazing. Which I think is kind of interesting. Um, And the CV surgeons just say, I don't understand why other CV surgeons aren't doing pre-ops. Like, why can't we figure out how to implement this? like worldwide. And I just say, I don't know. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, I think it'd be kind of nice. Yeah. Well, and that was my question, Joe is sort of, was it difficult to, to implement this change in your facility? It seems like everybody was sort of just on board with it. And I feel like in other facilities and other big medical centers, they would say, Oh, there's so much pushback from the docs or, you know, nobody wants to change our protocols. So yeah. Talk about your experience with that. We're really lucky because I'm not in a big, huge, I remember being in a thousand bed trauma center and the red tape of, I think the bigger the hospital, the more difficult it is to move things through. And what's interesting is we've moved now to one inner mountain. So when I lived down, I mean, I live in a Southern, I'm way, everybody thinks I'm in Salt Lake. I'm not, I'm, I'm 300 miles from Salt Lake. And so there is a, a big hospital in Salt Lake. I'm a and we all kind of collaborate now, and they're very interested and said the same thing. How did you start it? I think it was over cocktails, actually, yeah. at a party, um, where a lot of things start. How all right? programs think, that should start, yeah. And what's, it's, that's what's so sad for me for the last two years with this whole pandemic is we've lost that face-to-face connection to say, hey, why aren't we doing this when it's you get on a Zoom and you look at somebody and it's effective, but I don't think it's as effective as sitting down, having a cup of coffee or, you know, having a cocktail with someone and saying, why are we seeing these kind of patients? And like I said, yes, our patients that failed post-op had longer intubation times, had more comorbidities, but I never thought they'd go. It just for some reason didn't occur to me that people were going into surgery fragile. I think we as speech pathologists forget that. And I know that Dr. Creary and Giselle, Dr. Mann, talk about that a lot. And they say community-dwelling people, about 10% of them have risk for aspiration. So we don't 
Like, why don't we look at people pre-op? And to be honest with you, we do it all for free. So it's a screen, can't bill for it. And there is always, you know, there's always a nurse coordinator that tells, does all the education for patients before they have heart surgery. She is clearly trained to do this. Nurses can do it. We totally trust them. Our docs like the speech pathologist to do it. So there's consistency of care. Uh, but when we're really busy, Amy will call and say, hey, I've got a pre-op. And I say, I'm really busy, can't do it. Then she contacts me and says, John Smith or, you know, Cassandra failed, second Taver failed. And I'm like, okay, so we all just communicate really well together. And like I said, it started with cocktails. And it was Jason that said, I really believe they're going in fragile. I think you're going to catch more people, not just intubation time, but going into it. I mean, people that need heart surgery aren't the healthiest people. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, it all just makes perfect sense, you know, and, and like you said, you're you're doing it for free as a screen, but I think in the big picture, think of, you know, the costs that you're saving on the back end from, you know, reduced length of stay and things like that. And those are, you know, sort of all the big key points that everyone wants to talk about all the time. So, and it's interesting because when I, when I did this lecture, it's like, I, and I had no idea, doctors actually just kind of eyeball patients and say, Hmm. Wonder if this one's going to fail or not. And then they do the walk test and now they do the swallow screen. And it's, we had a, we had a TAVR just, so a TAVR is when they go into, for people that don't know what a TAVR is, what they do is they go in through your femoral line, you're awake, you're not asleep. They don't intubate you. They give you a twilight sleep. They go through your femoral or um, mostly the femoral. Sometimes they go through the brachial and they go in and replace your aortic valve while you're awake. And they're generally much older patients that can't handle open heart surgery. So we're getting a lot of 80, 90 year olds that are getting TAVRs. And we had one lady who I went into, and usually these screens take two, three minutes. Like I don't know anything about them. I walk in cold. I'm absolutely blind. I don't want to know anything about them because it's a screen. And I go in and introduce myself. The nurse has done all the procedure, all the readiness. There's my cup of water that's already measured out. Um, and I go in and do a Yale swallow protocol. You know, you do the, the stick your tongue out, left, right, alert, oriented, following commands. What kind of surgery are you having? And then I do the, a water, a water challenge with them. We had one lady about three weeks ago who was completely confused, clearly demented, very demented, didn't pass the walk test failed not just the ability to not be oriented and follow commands, but I gave the water screen just to do the dual. This is a fail fail. This is like the definitely a screen for a reason. And Amy talked to the docs and said, let's talk to the the husband. This, this isn't going to go well. Do we want to do this? And they canceled the surgery. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You know, and and that's what's supposed to happen. You stratify for a reason just because you can do surgery doesn't mean you should do surgery. And they are, our docs are pretty good about that. You know, I mean, sometimes families will push back and then you do what you do, but that's how it all started. And it's been going now for, well, for six years, five years, six years, seven years now. I'm thinking, I'm still thinking it's 2019. I you can edit that out. Yes, um, that's okay. Or you can leave it in because it's kind of funny because time flies when you get older. I know. Someone said to me the other day, you've been doing the podcast for like close to four years. And I was like, no, I just started it like last year. It seems to me like you've been doing it for a long time. But And it was really, and then of course, you know, so now, I mean, all the docs know we do this. All of a sudden the ACDF people came up to me. So the neurosurgeons are all like, okay, why don't we do a screen for these big, you know, ACDF procedures and they screen and what a concept, what a concept. They do a swallow screen for a large, you know, you're going to go C3 to C7. You're going to get an, a swallow screen and they know to do decadron during surgery because of all the swelling. And they do, a, if the patient fails the screen, um, oftentimes they'll do a pre-op modified barium swallow as an outpatient. So we know what their swallow looks like before they go into surgery. And I think, gee, what a concept yes. we're being proactive. Oh I just, I think of so many ACDF patients that I had that just, I mean, for months and months just had horrible swallowing issues. And, and some of them, I would think like, 
this has got to be like baseline. This has got to be before the surgery. And I just remember having conversations with people and they're or like with spouses or family members. And I remember one wife and she said, oh yeah, he's had this trouble for like six years. I'm like, oh my gosh, like it would have been so helpful to know this before you go do an ACDF. And now it's even more disastrous. And the, what's interesting is our PAs, all the PAs that do are in the operating room with the physician they used to ask patients, do you have a swallowing problem? And we all know, working in the trenches, that that coughing and coughing through meals that you supposedly get when you're older is not normal. And so now they don't say, they don't, they ask, do you, do you feel like you have a swallowing problem? And that can include, you know, feeling like food gets stuck in your throat, difficulty taking pills. Do you cough during meals? And it's like all of our PAs, I didn't tell them to do that. All the PAs just started saying, hey, I'm starting to ask some of these questions because we're getting people. And those are the people that oftentimes fail. So it was, and we do, you know, we did, I mean, we clearly did a bedside swallowing eval. Then we would do an instrumental eval um, when the patient generally got out of the ICU, either to fees if we thought it was laryngeal. If we thought there was an esophageal component, we did a modified barium swallow. And all of them were positive for either aspiration or an esophageal dysmotility or a pharyngeal and esophageal problem. So it wasn't like that screen was a false negative. It was definitely a screen and it was effective. And we keep people, we keep people out of rehab and get them home much faster now that we have the whole rehab team on board. So not just cardiac rehab is on board, but the PTOT and speech and respiratory therapy are because we get them up, move them, do pulmonary clearance tasks, do mobility, brush your own teeth, do all that. And it's a whole team event. And then the whole family knows because they saw us before surgery and after surgery. And they always say, you know, why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. And I say, well, You'd be surprised how many people have difficulty swallowing. And so we want to catch people that may have difficulty swallowing but when they go into surgery, because with all those sternal wires, you're not going to want to be coughing a lot. So we just watch you very closely and they really, they're all interested in it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this just sounds like the most amazing, like interprofessional collaborative thing. You know, I mean, it just sounds so picture perfect that should be implemented everywhere. And I remember I had, you know, clearly you, you and I know like Marty Brodsky and all those guys that really helped me. Steve Leader helped me amazingly. Deb Suter, they all helped me because I am not a PhD. I'm not a researcher. So they really helped me keep, you know, my nose to the ground and don't, this is a double blind, hang in there. And they really wanted to see if we could get this published in a speech pathology journal. And it was my CV surgeon that said, we need to publish it in the CV surgeries because speech pathologists will be on board with it. Of course we will. And he said, you're going to have the hardest time convincing a doctor. So it really needs to be something that's published in our journal and it needs to be us going to meetings and saying this needs to be done. And so that's what they're doing when they go to their CV heart surgeries. They talk about it all the time. And I don't know why it's not more prominent. I know Emily Plowman's doing a lot of research in it in her facility in Florida, and they're catching a lot as well. They're doing post-op screens. I don't know if they're doing pre-op screens yet. So it's catching on. Yeah, yeah. Which is good. Have you, have you gone to any of these meetings, Joe, or is that just the, the doctors? Yeah. I haven't gone to the CV Heart ones, but Jason has, and he is, he, he's a great speaker, and he is awesome. He spoke, he, his, he's the first author clearly on our publications. So he has definitely gone, but I don't, Yeah. sometimes I post it on our SIG 13 stuff. I don't like to tout. I know, I know, but it's, but it's very, it's very helpful. It's very useful. So I think that's the, you know. And I think that, I think it'd be really cool if speech pathologists did it with the ACDFs. If they could get their neurosurgeons, because we were seeing more ACDFs with large, large fusions. And I just kept saying, why don't we just implement this? This is ridiculous because you're going to catch people going in and then post-op. And then they're the ones that said, why don't we need to give steroids um, with these big, with these big surgeries, do um, 24-hour IV steroids, and they do a lot better. And I thought, well, some don't like to give that because they don't think the fusion takes as well. But our, our, our neurosurgeons just said, this is great. And I just thought, so we saw a huge decline in post-op ACDF issues when they implemented a screen and um, what they do in surgery. And I thought, okay, so why aren't you 
publishing this. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I used to get this one neurosurgeon's patients all the time after his ACDFs. And I'm like, what is this dude doing to these people? Like, what is he doing? But now I'm curious if he just had really fragile patients, you know, I was so mad at him, but it could have just been the patient population that he was, that he was treating. So now I'm curious. Cause I, I might've been a little kinder to him. Well, and it's, it's, if, when you look at it, they go through the whole pharyngeal plexus, they move the esophagus. I mean, it is a big deal. And if anybody has any kind of GERD or esophageal issues too, sometimes we got the people who that, who could swallow, but said they couldn't, you know, you got the spitters, you understand that we all understood the edema part, but it was like, why is this person? And they're like, I can't get anything down, but they're swallowing and you're thinking, and they move everything. And I just think, well, it's a pretty big deal. It's a big surgery. I mean, it's a huge surgery. If you think about it, a lot of medical professionals get it because of what we do all day. We're hanging over a bed and lifting dead weight all day. Right, right, right. right. Truth. You asked me a question about what you think is a sentinel paper when we were setting this all up. I don't know. The, you know, the thing is, is I'm so old that it's nice because I grew, well, I am, I don't feel like I am, but I am. And, but I grew up in this field with some phenomenal researchers. I mean, I remember when Susan Langmore presented fees at DRS and got hassled. And there were a number of us that said, this is going to be big. And there were a number of that people that didn't think that it was going to be big. And now the younger generation just thinks we've been doing fees forever. Um, the beauty of being kind of in the, in the beginning of this whole field is you get to see the amazing researchers coming through and the people that are your age and younger and what they're doing to me is pretty spectacular. So the whole, I mean, I think I've missed three or four DRSs, which is dysphagia research society for anybody that doesn't know what that means. And that's all the research that people are doing around the world a lot of times before it's published. And so you can, as a clinician, you think, well, is, Am I going to benefit from that? But if you can look at what happens in the laboratory and apply it to what's happening in the field, that's all that critical thinking that we learn. I think one of the Sentinel papers was, and we all know this, is Dr. Langmore's paper in regards to is the, the predictors of aspiration pneumonia, the top predictors of aspiration pneumonia. And so that's why with these CV heart purse patients, if they trace aspirated and had a little bit of aspiration, we didn't change their diets. We worked on their pulmonary system. We kept their mouths clean, right? It was all of those, that sentinel paper is what kind of knocked my head in. And by thinking aspiration is not the end all be all. Yes, it's serious, but it's not the top serious thing. And if you can get your people feeding themselves, taking their medications safely, uh, doing pulmonary clearance tasks with EMST and IMST and, and all of that independence, not all that aspirates gets a pneumonia. And you can be a little bit more liberal in your ability to, you know, allow people to have free water um, and do all that kind of stuff. And I think that Sentinel paper is something that every speech pathologist um, should look at. And I know people have followed up with other research like Stephanie Daniels and that and said it's really the clean mouth and the independence of feeding yourselves. And so that kind of research has been replicated and validated for since 1998. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah, completely. And that's what's wild. I think, you know, we have this amazing research that's out there. And then somewhere along the lines, you still, even now there's new grads still saying, you know, thickening is what we do first. You know, it's like, we don't even think of all these other, you know, much more global concepts, you know, it's, it's, it's mind modeling, but at the same time, it's (laughs) why I do this and why we'll keep talking about, you know, the wonderful people. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate you doing that. It's it's funny because we have because of COVID. There's every hospital has travelers, right? Because everybody gets burnout. And um, the beauty of working in acute care for anybody that works in acute care is I probably put somebody on what we used to call nectar thick or mildly thick and whatever the itsy language is. I don't, I don't. I probably do that four times a year, maybe. And it and it like bothers me. Yeah, yeah. To thicken someone's liquid, it really bothers me because in acute care, you can do IV fluids. We have a tremendous amount of interdisciplinary care to keep people's mouths clean. We always allow people to have ice and water. Um, and we completely have moved towards that 
um, OTs go, okay, we're going to get this person to brush their teeth independently. PTs are mobilizing them and it's a total integrated machine. And it's, it's just interesting because now we have a lot of, because of COVID, we have a lot of traveling nurses. And I just went to go see this COVID patient yesterday and she said, well, he does better with thick. And so I thickened his water. And I said, excuse me. I mean, it just blew me away that someone would even think about thickening water. And I said, oh, we don't thicken water here. Really? Why don't you thicken water? And I said, because it's like snot. It's nasty. And a texture thing is not okay with us. And I said, and we allow people to aspirate with water as long as we keep people's mouths clean and they're mobile. And she just kind of was blown away. And she said, I've never worked in a place that didn't thicken water. And I said, I don't think we've ever thickened water here. And I've been here 18 years. So I said, it's perfectly fine to do that with him. She goes, well, but he's a known aspirator. And I said, yep. Yep. And he's doing okay. And he's not on any more oxygen and he's doing really well. And she, you know, little by little, you train someone who doesn't work here to go to the next institution. And little by little, our job, I think, is to educate politely and excitedly and talk about the research and be excited about it. And then that way it just spreads. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah, completely. Oh, I love that show. I, I think that's a, a great example. I think, you know, the, the sad part is so many people are just so dang busy in the trenches that it's like, unless they hear it from real world experience, it's tough to follow all the, you know, latest and greatest concepts. Although this is something that's sort of been around for a while, but yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing. Talk to me a little bit about like, so you said it's been, you've been there 18 years and you guys haven't, don't really thicken, thicken liquids. How did you sort of get, you know, everybody on board with doing oral care. Like you said, you know, the nurses just do it all the time. Cause I feel like that's a big complaint of SLPs is like, it takes me an hour just to clean out the cobwebs of this person's horrific mouth. That's a really good question. Um, and, and this is a very big generality, but and this is from experience. And if you, and, and I'm sure people will laugh about this when they hear me say this, nurses would much prefer to clean a butt than a mouth. <laughs> Nurses hate to clean mouths. It just grosses them out. It gags them. It makes, it just grosses them out. And I'll guarantee, like I had to go into a patient room yesterday and they were cleaning a butt and I, that's all I smelled for an hour after that. Even though I stuck the, the, the alcohol swabs up my nose, I was in an ICU COVID patient room and they were like, we need to come in and do the eval. Oh, we're cleaning them up. And I, then they looked at me and laughed because they know yeah. that speech pathologists don't like butts, but we'll clean them out. (laughs) And so I think that's kind of, if if you approach, I know a lot of people get mad about it. Like some, when I train clinicians, they get really mad. This patient's mouth was really bad. And I just think, you know what, just grasp it, educate them, help them. If, if you go in and, and I know it's not quote, a skilled thing to clean someone's mouth, but it is a skill and help the family members, help the patient. And if you go in and and clean people's mouths for nurses and get that kind of stuff done, they'll be so much more on board to continue to do that and continue to um, allow water and all that kind of stuff. And if you just say, Hey, I'll come in and clean that guy's mouth, especially after by people's on a CPAP or BiPAP. And, and they'll just, that's kind of a nice marriage, you know, like they'll go, I got to clean. I'm like, Hey, your patient went to the bathroom. I'm out of here, but I'm happy to clean their mouths. And that's kind of a symbiotic relationship between nurses and speech pathologists. And if you look at it that way, instead of a a burden, they'll be like, Oh, thank, I really tried to clean his mouth. And I always say things like those sponges, they don't do it. So Sage has the toothbrushes that are hooked up to suction now, I use toothbrushes and toothpaste, and I set up suction, and I show them, and I get, once you get that mouth clean and it's not so bad, the nurses will be happy to do that. And I incorporate that whole, the OT and I will go in there and have the patient do as much as they can or have the family and just have the family involved to help. And all of that stuff is just turns into one interdisciplinary collaborative thing. And I have, um, like, I've had a, a, a CV heart charge nurse, not a charge nurse, but the manager get really mad because he had a patient who was an aspiration risk and the PCTs, we call them PCTs or CNAs, didn't get that person up and brush their teeth. And he's the one that said, do you understand what it's like to have a dirty mouth 
for a heart patient. And so when I train, all, I go to all the nursing staff skills meetings and we talk about the nursing screen. We talk about oral care because those patients want water. And the last thing a speech therapist, the nurse wants is to wait for a speech pathologist to come do an eval. So if the nurses know that the patient needs to have their mouth clean, that it's the bacteria in the mouth more than the water that's going to cause the aspiration. If you educate them with evidence-based information, they'll be more inclined to do whatever you want them to do. But if it's like, hey, this patient needs to have his mouth clean for no other reason, and you don't explain it politely, then they don't get on board. And so for some, I mean, I've had people come from up north down and watch us or help us. And they're like, how did you do this? And I just thought, well, I take the time to go to all the new hires orientation and I spend 15 minutes talking to all the new ICU nurses about what does a speech pathologist do in the ICU. And it's not just swallowing. We do cognitive stuff. We do concussions. We do light head injuries to traumatic head injuries. We talk about how to communicate on a ventilator. We talk and intubated. We do all of that for your, um, the benefit of the nurse to be able to know what that patient needs. And so it's that little bit of education on the front end and you just keep doing it. I do it about every, I do it in the ER. I do it in the ICU. I do it on the neuro floors. Now the COVID floor, their skills day, they just get that 15 minute blurb about what we do as a profession to help you and that patient communicate their needs. Awesome. Yeah. Cause that, that was what I was going to ask about, you know, with that travel nurse you had that doesn't, you know, that was unfamiliar with not thickening liquids. I didn't know if that was something that you talk about in, you know, at the new hire orientation. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Not just me, my other colleagues do it. Oftentimes I'll do it a little bit more and, you know, I understand it. It It's people kind of call me the energizer buddy. They say, when are you going to burn out? But I just like, I don't take a lunch break. I'll just eat my lunch while I'm documenting so that I can go to the ICU and do this. And you know what? If you take 15, 20 minutes of your time, that's unbillable. It's, you get more appropriate referrals. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I talk to the hospitalist nurses. They all know now that when we go into an eval and someone's an aspiration risk, these people get EMSTs and flutter valves and it's like, it's just kind of a weld grease machine. And now all the wonderful research out that Dr. Sapsienza is doing and Emily Plowman, I mean, Dr. Suter, they're all doing wonderful research. And our, my attitude is let's, they're, it's out there. Let's follow it. Don't tweak it. Follow what they're doing. And you do, do see the results. We just don't have a lot of aspiration risks or aspiration pneumonias around here. That's amazing. Yeah. Cause the nurses, what do they hear? Yeah. I want water. They get excavated. I want water. I want water. So guess what? We implemented the Yale swallow protocol post extubation. All the nurses do it an hour after extubation. And if they fail, they automatically get a speech consult. Yeah. I, I just, I love how nonchalantly you said that, Joe. We just don't have aspiration pneumonia around here. We just, <laughs> how, how many, how many facilities can say that? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and if we do, I take it personally. It's like, I, okay, yeah. what we do wrong, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and it's so funny because I'll never forget when I was training a clinician, I was in a, a neuro room, very, very bad mouth. And the nurse is like, I'm really sorry. I can't get this. You know, she, she's on a BiPAP and then she's sleeping with her mouth open and we've all seen it. It's not the nurse's fault. We've all seen it. Um, so not to put blame always helps. They'll be more apt to clean a mouth. If you get it clean first, they'll keep it clean. Um, but I just remember getting into this lady's pharynx and I was using a toothbrush and warm washcloths and a suction catheter. And I, I grabbed something out of this woman's mouth that looked like an alien, you know, and my, my colleague screamed like she was so excited. She goes, yes. <laughs> We're some sick individuals. <laughs> and the nurse just walked out of the room and she's like, I'm going to Ralph. Like, I'm- yeah. Yeah. I remember this one patient I had that was just bleeding profusely. And the, the nurse came in and I was like, I can't deal with blood. I can't deal with blood. And she was like, you know, the amount of stuff you just took out of that patient's mouth and the blood is what scares you. I'm like, yeah, I can't do blood. I, I will clean crust out of a mouth any day, but no, <laughs> I can't do blood. <laughs> oh my gosh. And respiratory therapists would do it too. I've had, yeah. I've put in a glidoscope with a, with a respiratory therapist and gotten something out of pe- someone's pharynx. Cause if they would have intubated him, it would have been a, yeah. a nightmare because yeah. we knew it was down there. If it's in the posterior pharynx, we knew it was further down. And so Jimmy's like, Hey, I got a glidoscope. I'm like, oh, okay. And we just put these big, long forceps in us and got it. And the 
the pulmonologist just looked at us and said, thanks. Because yeah. if I would have intubated right. him, that would have been in his lungs. Right, right. It's nice. I don't know. And I think maybe it's the area that I live in. People just want the best for their patients. They really care. You know, when they get support from their managers, it's a great hospital to work at. And it's just, it's just very integrated. I can't work in an, I couldn't work in a silo and I couldn't work in a vacuum because we can't do what we do without physical and occupational therapies input and help. Right. Yeah. 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 Thank you for, for pointing that out. Cause I think that's such a big thing too, is people just think this type of setting doesn't exist. You know, I'm always going to be pushed back against, or I'm never going to work in this collaborative environment. And I'm like, no, I know a lot of people that work in these types of places. So, so thank you for saying that because I, I know it's possible and it just, it, it might involve us getting off our ledge a little bit and, and being more compassionate, being more of a team player, but I know it's totally possible. I've been in a bunch of facilities like that. So. And flexible, like we just got called, like, and it helps to share an office with everybody, but like, well, I'll get a call saying, Hey, we're going into this. ICU patient's room, he's on 50 liters of high flow at 60%. We're getting up in a chair. He's not desatting. Now is a good time to go in. And you're like, for you, not for me. But but when you respond and say, okay, I'm going to have to adjust, and you always have to be flexible on acute care. I mean, just anything goes. You can't get freaked out when you see a whole bunch of consults because half of them will be, you know, something that you can do now or later. And I just go, okay, I'll be there in, you know, Slow it down a little bit. I'll be there in 10 minutes, you know. And when they see us respond to what they're doing to help us, they're more apt to help us again and again and again. And it was, and like, I've had patients who've been really delirious. And instead of medicating them, I'll call the PT and say, hey, Gail, this guy really needs to get up and move. He is really delirious. We have got to get him up. We've got to move him. Can you come? And the very first time I asked her, she was really sweet. She goes, I'm on my way to lunch. And I said, please. And she said, all right. And we got him up and he didn't need to be medicated. And he was able to de-escalate and not be agitated. And he was able to get oriented. And that satisfaction from the patient proved to the PT, you got to be a little bit more flexible. You can't always have lunch at noon. You know what I mean? And that just those little nuggets that you do and help, and they'll reciprocate it for you if you help them. You know what I mean? Like I'll just sit down to eat and I'll get a call saying, Hey, we got your patient up. Now's a really good time to see him. And you just think, Oh man, I'm really hungry. Yeah. Yeah. And you go, okay. You know, and then it's just, that's how you get that well greased machine is you got to give a little, be a little more flexible, put yourself last, um, your patient first, and then people will reciprocate whenever you need them. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That was very well said. So thank you for pointing that out. I agree with you. To to be honest, I think, you know, I remember a few years that sort of the best therapy team that I was on, that's how it was. I can't remember a day that I ever ate lunch at the same time every day. And it's not that I didn't have lunch. It's not that I was starving at 6 p.m. at night. It just, I, we were a very, we, we loved each other. We were a great team. We were a family and it was just I could get in now. They could help us, you know, okay, I was going to go to lunch, but let me, you know, rearrange my plans. And it just, like you said, it was such a fulfilling and, and I had so much satisfaction with that team and we helped so many great patients, but you know, yeah. And and flexible, I think is the key word. It's not, you're not abandoning yourself. You're not abandoning your self-care or starving yourself for hours on end, but being a little bit more flexible, I think can just go such a long way. Oh yeah. Protein drinks and snacks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. It's, yeah. And you know, like, you, oh. yeah. And I think if you have support, I have a really good boss. Um, Greg's a great bra- boss. And it's, if you have support, his, their attitude is, you know, come to work when you come to work. I see how you guys work, leave when you need to, you got to go to this and run an errand, go run an errand. I see you all the time, sit down to eat and your vocera goes off and you just get up. I mean, you know, how many times does someone show up to radiology? Oh, your patient's here already. Sorry, we brought them early. And you're like, okay. And I just think, I I think we as speech pathologists respond better when people want to help us and drop what they're doing and saying, hey, you looks like you need some help with this guy and be there to help us and give us that encouragement to learn and and help a patient that will reciprocate it. And I think that like, and whenever I'm training someone that does acute care and we come into a whole bunch of consults, people get really freaked out and they get, they analyze until they're paralyzed. How are we going to do this and say, okay, we're going to do one at a time. Yep. We're going to triage. We're going to figure out who's NPO and needs to be seen first. Who's got a feeding tube that can be at the end and we'll do it. 
you know, it'll be okay. It really will be okay. Some of these people will have to go down to MRI or have a procedure and they, it really won't be a consult yet. It's okay. And then once they learn that ebb and flow, I think they operate really well. And I think people gravitate to acute care that can be flexible and like that bizarre day every day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think people that gravitate towards inpatient rehab are a little bit, they like the ability to work with someone for an hour. I mean, I work with people, I work with head injuries two or three times a day, you know, because you can't work with them for a half hour, 45 minutes at a time. And, you know, people gravitate to inpatient rehab where they're a little bit less medically fragile and, and can see the meat of things and see a little bit more progress. And then you go direct gravitate to outpatient for the all of those fine tunings that are so intricate and needed for people to stay independent at home. And I think that's what we do as a field. And that's how you find where you really like to work is that your personality will fit where you live, you know, in your working life. Let's put it that way. I think. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think there's a lot of people that are, that are sort of mismatched in that concept. You know, there's so many different settings we can work in where the patients aren't that drastically different, um, but it's got to be sort of at your pace. And I think that's something that's very overlooked that people sort of just jump on maybe the first position that's offered to them or, um, you know, this place is closest to my house. Let me take this, although it does not fit their values at all. So, um, yeah, these are all great, great points to consider, Joe. So thank you. And when I talk to grad students, I, I don't personally take grad students anymore because all the seasoned clinicians that I work with are my students pretty much. So my cl- the clinicians that I work with are fabulous, fabulous with grad students. They're great teachers. They do. I have a great staff that I work with um, and we're all very much on the same page. Um, we don't have a pecking order, all that kind of stuff. But when I watch them with grad students, they'll say, you, you will either love acute care or you won't. And it's really your personality type. Like if you're a very methodical person that needs to take a lot of time to do something, you're not going to like acute care because it's going to be too unsettling for you. Yeah. But if you're a kind of person that deals with chaos pretty well and it's like, this is kind of, this energizes me, then you really do like acute care. Yeah. But you'll see that as a grad student, you'll follow those niches and think, oh, this is really cool. I really like it. And the whole medical fragility part, I think is the educational part. I mean, I still learn things all the time from physicians and nurses um, and respiratory therapists, PTs and OTs. I still learn something every day. So I think that piece really helps the acute care people that like a little bit of that, whatever's going to happen today, that extra education that you get all the time. Yeah. I think that's one of my most favorite things that I love, you know, talking to you guys, talking to people on the podcast is they all sort of say, oh, I learned so much from this PT or this doctor taught me so much or this dietitian taught me so much. And, and and I think that's what I love is I don't think we do a very good job of getting ourselves just out there and, and being part of the team and, and contributing in whatever way we can, because we're able to learn so much back from them. And I, I'm sort of exactly what you said, only in the sniffs, I loved everything about working in, you know, nursing homes and I know other people did not like it at all or do not like it at all, but it was totally my jam. I loved, you know, I, I love seeing people sort of when they're just at their worst, nobody wants to be in a, in a nursing home. You know, nobody wants to be there to hear that they're there for three months till they, you know, their hip gets better. And then why, but why are we there for swallowing? And, you know, I just, I loved just sort of establishing that relationship with them and knowing that we were together for a few months and, that that was everything to me. You know, of course, there's not fun parts of working in SNFs, but you take it and leave it. You know, I, I love my relationship with the patients. I love the outcomes we were able to get, and that was that was my jam. So, oh, I I I've worked in I've done home health, and when I'm doing it, I love it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I've worked in SNFs. I worked in a SNF in California that had happy hour at, at four o'clock, so <laughs> you had to make sure you had to get in there. I thought if I ever have to be in a SNF, this is going to be a SNF I want to be in. <laughs> It was an awesome little family-owned sniff, and it was fun. It was really, the, the chef was amazing. And when people needed to be on some pureed things, he just did an amazing job of the taste of everything. And it was like, you can just get into your groove there and spend a lot of time with patients. Um, LTACs, I've worked everywhere. My, I mean, my, my favorite is critical care, but it just, like, you'll find your niche. If anybody out there is listening and they're new, you'll find your niche. It It's it's a cool field because you can work anywhere in the world with any population from birth to senescence. I mean, speech pathology is a really cool field. 
and I, I mean, I, we just hired an, uh, someone who's like three years out and she was talking to me and I was trying to help her problem solve about, she's used to being a little bit more with her experience, a little bit more um, conservative on whether to feed somebody. And I said, well, let's look at the labs. And I started looking at her lab values. And I said, well, this is why this neutrophils and this is, they're not going to be able to fight infection really well. And she just looked at me and she goes, well, when are you going to teach me that? I said, well, right now. <laughs> I know. You will. <laughs> yeah. You'll get it. You can't learn it all at once. Yeah. And she just keeps coming to work and she goes, I'm finding out that I don't know very much. I said, you have, you know, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Worked in, you worked in skilled nursing facilities. You know, a lot. You just don't know a lot about acute care yet. And you will, you know, it's a process it takes years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, awesome. 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 All right. This has been wonderful. It's been fun. Yeah. I'm excited for you. Yeah. Thank you. I hope so. I hope people are interested. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've had a lot of cardiac episodes lately, which is exciting that we've, we're finally getting so much SLP involvement in those, in those settings. So any final thoughts for the people? Um, if you have any questions, I don't know if you give their, my email, you can give my email. Um, we can, if you'd like, yep, Absolutely. I don't know. Thanks so much for what you do because so many people get to hear this from worker bees. And that's nice that we're not just all in our little silos. I mean, I'm not a silo, but our hospital's working. And you just think, am I doing the right thing from what everybody else is doing? So it's nice that you guys have these, this podcast because then they can listen to everyday people that are in the trenches working. And even if they're in the lab and they're doing research, man, those guys do have to go through a lot of hoops to get the research that they publish. And then we got to follow the evidence-based medicine, that opinion that we got to follow the evidence-based medicine, I think is probably, you know, the one thing I've learned, especially with MBSs and stuff, we have got to start following the evidence-based medicine and not just what we think we should be doing or because we've been doing it for 15 years that way. Change is good. Adapting is good. Yep, it is. It is. And this is why I love doing this because I, I get so many emails like, oh, I, you know, love what Joe said. I, we're so close to implementing that. Can I email her? And so those are, those are some of my most favorite emails to get because like you said, it's people are, you know, trying to assimilate it into their facilities just might get stuck with, you know, one thing or another. So um, everyone that's come on here has just been so helpful and it's wonderful. It's what, what our community should be, what our, what our profession should be. So sharing. Yeah. Helping. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, that's what people taught me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, thank you for even asking me. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes. And share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills, and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.